Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Who are you? Throughout scripture, we get various ways in which people identify themselves. The most obvious example might be, for example, Jonah. You all know who Jonah is, hopefully. But my guess is the reason why you know who Jonah is is not the reason why Jonah wants you to know who Jonah is, right? You all know Jonah as the influencer who spent an exotic three-day vacation in the Airbnb Big Fish. (laughs) On his business card, it might read the world's first submarine commander. But he does not want to be known as that guy, right? The guy who's so disobedient to God that he would rather have himself killed than do what God wants him to do. Instead, we do see how Jonah identifies himself in 2 Kings 14. There he identifies himself by the four criteria that we use ourselves. We have his name, Jonah. His heritage, he's the son of Amittai. He's the prophet of the Lord. That's his calling, his job. And fourthly, he's from Gath Hefer. That's his hometown, his people. That's how we used to answer the question about who we are. You all know me as the Irish professor who speaks way too fast. (laughs) The question is, do you know who you are? And in our world, that means something different, where once it was asked to amnesia patients by concerned doctors, or perhaps to rude and obnoxious children by exasperated parents, this question about identity has morphed into something very new. In our world, in our context, the question of who you are is not merely a method of identification, but now it attempts to get to the very root of how we view ourselves. What does it mean for me to be me? So I wonder, and this morning I want you to think about, who are you? How do you see yourself? And I'm not going to ask you to do something that I'm not going to do. So let me tell you how I used to see myself many, many, many moons ago. When I was a kid, I was smart. I liked being smarter than my peers at school. I liked being smarter than my siblings, or so I thought. But for me, it was important to sound, to look, and actually to be smarter, because being frank and honest, when I was younger, I was not this stunning specimen of masculinity that you see before you today. No, when I was a kid, hard to believe, but I was a chubby, buck-toothed, hamster-cheeked, ugly little kid. I was not a chick magnet. But I was smart. I felt it, and I knew it, and I sure as heck let other people know it. Because this was how I found my sense of value, my sense of worth, my sense of purpose. It's how I found my identity, my meaning, my identity. Who I was in my own mind was wrapped up in my intellect. It's how I wanted to be known as the smartest guy in the room, praised for my wisdom. And then, 
Then there was Rupert. Anyone here called Rupert? Good, it's a ridiculous name. <laughs> I'm still bitter about it because Rupert was smarter than me. If I got 90 in a test, he got 95. If I got full marks, he somehow got more full marks. And it irked me because my sense of value was in my intellect, so if Rupert was in the same room as me, then I was worth less. In my mind, I was worthless because I wanted to be the smartest. And let me just tell you, as a side note, God has a sense of humor, because here I am with a PhD to my name, and when I sit in our faculty meeting, I am still the bluntest tool in the shed. So God has a sense of humor, but they don't have an Irish accent. So priorities where priorities are. <laughs> I tell you this because for me, my intelligence as a kid which wasn't really that superior to anyone else, it's just what I thought it was. But my intelligence for me became my idol and my safety net. When I struggled with my insecurity about how I looked or what was going on around me, I would return to my shelter that I was cleverer than the bullies, than smarter than the jocks, the jerks, the players. It was for me the very foundation for my identity as I was entering puberty which means that my identity was grounded in something flimsy and fragile because it's always going to be a Rupert. <coughs> Thank the Lord that that idol has been put to death. But I share that with you because I want you to think about what your idols are that you ground your identity in. And I want to help you to answer this question of knowing who you are by directing you to the first few verses in the book of Ephesians. So if you have, turn with me. If not, it will be on the screen. In chapter 1, as you turn there, or flip there, or tap there, Paul explains that our salvation is predestined as a gift of the triune God, and I wish we could go into that in great depth. If you want to, take my Church History 1 class. We'll spend a long time talking about that. Shameless plug. But for the purposes of this morning, I want us to focus our identity by looking at the first six verses of Ephesians 1. So let me read to you right now from Ephesians 1, 1 to, 1 to 6. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who were in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul tells you this morning to help you answer this question that your identity is grounded by God's choice. We're only really considering verses 3 to 6 this morning, but there's a phrase that beats like a drum throughout the book of Ephesians, and it is in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. This idea, idea conveys the, the concept that we are saved, and in our salvation we are united to Christ, union with Christ. What this means fundamentally is that our identity is not something that we can control, that we can change, or that we can choose. It's grounded on the basis of our relationship to and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully, obviously, 
you're able to know that this statement is heavily at odds with the world around us. The world says that we can choose our gender today and change it tomorrow. The world says that we can choose our sexual orientation and change it on a whim. That we can decide whether the living organism in the womb is a fetus or a parasite depending on purely on whether we want it or not. The world, which is really the culmination of the sexual revolution, it argues that our identity is found not in any external source, not in our family, our work, or in our relationships, but for the world, our identity is located only in my sense of self. I get to decide who I am am based upon my own preferences. And this idea does go back to the Garden of Eden when Satan promised Adam and Eve that if they consumed the fruit, they would be like God, which really means they'd become gods. Remember how God identifies himself in, in the Bible? I am who I am. The world tells you today that you can say that same phrase based upon your personal preference. Just as that lie was not true in Eden, it is not true today. And in typical Pauline fashion, Paul takes a big theologic grenade and dumps it into culture. Because you aren't who you say you are. You are only known by the one factor, which is either you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. We see different images in Scripture. You're the kingdom of God. You're saved or not saved. You're united to Christ or not. But they all point to this one simple binary dichotomy. Are you in Christ or are you again Christ, which is Alter Scots for against. So student, faculty, professor, coach, staff, are you in Christ? If so, you've been blessed. Look at verse 3. What does Paul say? You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I wonder what you think that means. One of the church fathers, a guy called Theodoret, he says this about what Paul shares here. These blessings in Ephesians 1.3 are the hope of the resurrection, the gospel of immortality, the promise of the kingdom of heaven, and the dignity of sonship. You hear that, Christian? God has blessed us with these heavenly blessings, and they're heavenly because they're superior to earthly blessings. Now, of course, we want earthly blessings. We may have a partner, wealth, children, safety, health, longevity of life, things like that. But we know that those things are temporary, fleeting, earthly. Paul is talking about heavenly blessings. Think of the difference between a silver necklace and a silver-plated necklace. Both look nice, both will accentuate your outfit, but eventually one will turn your neck green like Shrek. There's a difference. These infinite heavenly blessings are so much larger than we dare to imagine. It's so much more than that new car Joel Osteen promises you with a name it, claim it stuff. These blessings are larger, greater, vaster. They're incorruptible and eternal. And the almost incomprehensible truth of these blessings behind this whole text is that we are chosen by God. And because we've been chosen by God, our identity, who we are, is grounded in Him and His choice. You have a heavenly Father who sought you out. He actively decided to choose you. It's not defined, therefore, by the idols of your heart. It's been decided by the sovereignty and grace of God. 
Look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I hear you ask, how does this work? Well, Paul is a good apostle. Paul anticipates your question. So your identity is grounded in, by being in Christ. Our being in Christ has been achieved by our adoption. So secondly, your identity, having been grounded, is now given through adoption. In verse 5, we're chosen before the foundation of the world. Because of his love for us, God predestined us for adoption. How? Through Jesus Christ. Why? According to his will. For what? For what then have you been chosen? For adoption. In the Roman world, adoption was not primarily given to children, but to adults. It was a legal mechanism by which this now adopted adult son would become the full heir with all the legal rights of authority, of wealth, of inheritance, of family, of lineage. This is what we've been chosen for. It's nothing less than to be called a son or daughter in the family of God. And the basis for this adoption is his love for you. He did not choose me because I was smarter. He did not choose you because you're prettier or more athletic or more skilled than anyone else. It's grounded in his covenantal love and glorious grace. And his choice to save you is grounded in his will. This means that he is not compelled by any external source to save you that makes him act. He freely sought you out because he loves you. His loving choice to save you is based upon his will. And as his child, therefore, Christian, you are as much loved by God today as Jesus the Son is as loved by God today. You are as loved by God today as the Son is as loved by God today because you are his son or daughter this is how much he loves you. And I want to take a brief moment here. I have no doubt in an auditorium this size, there are people who have a strained, possibly even no relationship with your biological father. Let me encourage you to dwell on this passage because you are not fatherless. If you are in Christ, then your heavenly father, he looks upon you and with all the tenderness and compassion that you can begin to imagine, he calls you by your name. And he says, from before you were born, I chose you as my own. He declares with love that you are his because he has chosen to adopt you. That's an amazing truth for you and for me and everyone who's in Christ. Paul also tells us that there's more to our being in Christ than simply that we're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved so that we get to be holy and blameless. Now, this can be a bit confusing because, let's be honest, we're not blameless. I had an idol of intellect when I was a kid. I worshipped at that idol, and you have idols too that you worship at. So we know we aren't blameless. Even those of us who are in Christ aren't blameless. But this is where our adoption becomes so important because as God's children, we're adopted into his family in order that we might grow to be more like him so that we can reflect him to the world. As his children, we are to look like and act like our heavenly father. How do we do this? Well, 
the drumbeat keeps going by being in him. We're united to him because of adoption and because of the doctrine of imputation. That means that at the cross, when Christ died, he became your and my sin. And he gives us his sinlessness. The only way that we can be holy is that he makes us holy. The only way we can stand before God and be blameless is if when we stand before God, God sees Christ's blamelessness. So when God looks at you, he does not see your idolatry and sinfulness. He sees Christ's sinlessness and perfect sacrifice. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, Paul did not think that God will love us because we are good, but rather that God will make us good because he loves us. And we therefore are made holy by being in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we then look at Christ and learn what God expects from us. This is why we ought to spend time in the Bible, being in the Word. When we neglect the Word, we effectively give ourselves a drip feed of doubt. Instead, when we're in Scripture, we're gazing at Jesus to see what God wants us to look like. We can see how we're called to be. And if you're a chapel this morning at CIU and you're not a believer, then you need to know that these promises, they aren't for you yet. But in verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. To be redeemed means to be bought back, to have a slave having his freedom returned to him. Paul says in chapter 2 that everyone is a child of wrath, enslaved to sin and death. That's who we are in our natural state. But Paul says that we can be redeemed. Now, God is infinite. His love is infinite. His majesty is infinite. His glory is infinite. But so, too, is His holiness. Our sin is an assault on God's infinite holiness. That means there's an infinite chasm between where God is and where we are. We cannot bridge that infinite chasm. There's nothing that we can do, no amount of good deeds or promises or giving money to the poor or whatever it might be can make up for this infinite rebellion that we have that separates us from God. Unbelieving friend, this is where you are. And you know this because you hear yourself saying things time and time again that you don't want to say. There are things that you do and you don't want to do them and you find yourself doing them time and again. There are thoughts that you don't want to think that they always come back in and sometimes they take control. You know what enslavement to sin looks like. In this passage, Paul is telling you that the only way for you to be freed is if you are redeemed. Not that you have to try harder or be better, it's that you turn to Christ and accept his sacrifice in your place. Because at the cross, Jesus of Nazareth was also God the Son. And so he was God who was infinite, and he can bridge that infinite chasm by his infinite sacrifice. That's the heart of the gospel. And I implore you this morning, don't leave chapel today without talking to someone around you or a professor, my door is always open, who will introduce you to your heavenly Father. Christian, etch these verses onto the very fabric of your soul because there's going to be days when Satan drags up your past and you'll be ashamed and you'll wonder, how can I be saved? 
Look at the way I've lived. Perhaps there's someone here that last night did something, thought something, said something, and you're struggling to pay attention to the silly foreigner right now. These words ought to comfort our soul. On your worst of worst days, Christian, your Father's love for you is as deep as it has ever been. If God the Father gave His Son for you whilst you were a child of wrath, living in rebellion, what will He do for you now as His adopted child? What do you think He would withhold from you as His child if He did not withhold Jesus from the cross when you were His enemy? Dear Christian, your sin has been cleansed. It's who you are. You are forgiven. And so, because you've been adopted by God, your identity is determined by God. Your identity, therefore, is not determined by your race, your sexuality, your culture, your gender, your wealth, career, social status, achievements, failures, strengths, weaknesses, family, or anything else the world might throw at you. No, you are defined as a child of the King, redeemed by the blood of the Son at the cross of Calvary, so that you might magnify God and reflect His holiness to the world. That is who you are. Paul makes this argument elsewhere when he says that in Christ, notice that, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that by our adoption into the heavenly family, there are no earthly divisions. There are distinctions. Praise God that the church is wondrously, bizarrely diverse. That's awesome. It would be boring if we were all the same. But we're not finding our identity in the things that divide us anymore. We put those aside. This is why going to church is vitally important. Because when we take communion as a church, we do so as complete equals in Christ. He invites us to His table as His siblings to eat His meal and spiritually feast on His body and blood in anticipation of His glorious return when we'll have that final feast at His celebration. It's about Him. Going to church is not about you. Living in church community and taking community with our brothers and sisters is a declaration that we are united to Christ and to one another. And I know I've heard some students resent being expected to go to church. That's sad. Going to church and being in community is not a hobby. It isn't something to be taken for granted. It's a privilege given to you by God because you are part of God's family. And it's one way in which you identify yourself as God's. It's also a place where you learn to reflect and look like Jesus. Church shouldn't be a chore. It's certainly not to be a place where you have another Christian clique. It's a training ground. It's where we're reminded who we are and how to be who we are called to be. College, CIU, chapel, as good as they are, that's not church. In church, we need the little old ladies to tell us who we are, to teach us. We need the angry old man, to whip us into shape. But also, they need you to teach them, to show them, to love them, to share with them. By not being there or by being there but not really being there, you're robbing them short of what you can give them. It's selfish. Because your identity is that you are chosen by God not to be in isolation but to be in community, in family. And that is a corporate thing. And as we close, finally, 
It's grounded in God's choice. It's given through adoption. But most importantly, perhaps, it's guaranteed by the triune God. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our salvation. The Father chose you. You were adopted into his family through the cross of Christ. Because we've been chosen by God, for God, in Christ, that means that this is a love that we have not earned. And because we've not earned it, we can't jeopardize it. You hear that? Just as there's no outside force bigger than God that forces God to take you, so likewise there's no outside force big enough that forces God to give you up. Not Satan, not your sin, not your own idols, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's your identity. God is putting his signet ring onto you and saying, this one is mine. What Paul is telling you is that our inheritance is actually Christ's inheritance. God the Father has promised Jesus that he will rule forever in a perfect, perfectly restored world. And that once more, he will dwell with us and he will be our God and we will be his people in perfect harmony like Eden, but in a city. So fast food takeout. It's an imperishable, untarnishable, inevitable promise that is guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we close this morning, Christian student, pastor in training, professor, who are you? Does it matter what society says about your identity? No. Does it matter what you say about your identity? Not really. If the part of your heart that makes idols is the part you're listening to, then your identity does not matter. If it's the part of your identity that says, I'm a child of the king, then yes, you're right. What matters and my burden for you this morning, because the world is coming to teach you wrong things about who you are and what matters about who you are, my burden is that you would know who you are, not simply as you, but who you are in relation to God. My yearning is that you will begin to define yourselves by his name, his family, his calling for you, to go back to Jonah's illustration at the very start. Because God is the only one who gets to define who you are. The Father chooses you, the Son claims you, and the Spirit secures you. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has eternally orchestrated His plan to make you His own child. From eternity past, you were chosen. In the present, when you have been redeemed, to the future, when you will have in full what you now have in part. By our being united to Christ, our election is sealed by God's Spirit. It elicits in us and develops within us this willing obedience. The Spirit sanctifies us, helps us kill our vices, fosters a love of Christ-likeness, and thus we become more conformed into the likeness and image of Christ our Savior. And this passage climaxes in worship in doxology. God's choice to save us by sending His Son to redeem us and His Spirit to seal us should bring your heart to a place of abject joy. 
and praise. You are his, called by his name. He's chosen you from before the foundation of the world. He's adopted even you. He's redeemed you by his own blood, and he's sealed you with his indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And you have an inheritance which is certain. And now you are called to be holy and blameless because he's made you holy. And he who has begun this good work in you now will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are good, you are sovereign, you are holy. And we thank you that as Jesus taught us to pray, we can start by saying, Father, the one who has called us, redeemed us, claimed us, secured us, and sealed us, knows our name, knows us personally, individually, loves us, shepherds us, shields us, guards us, rebukes us, guides us, and teaches us. Help us not to lose sight of the magnificence of the glory of what it means to be a child of the King. Help us to value the covenant community of our church. Help us to value the beauty of communion when we sit together as equals, with no divisions, just our quirky distinctions that you have graciously given us. We ask you to inspire us to be bold in our identity in a world that seeks to destroy an identity grounded in your holy love and choice. We praise you. We worship you. We thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.